Hi, and welcome to Let's Get Clinical. Tips from the CRA Helper. Here is your host, Elizabeth Waddell. Hi, Elizabeth here, and welcome to episode 18, where I will continue to give you tips to help with monitoring. I'm sure most of you have heard the term domino effect, where something sets off a chain of events. Well, this happens many times when there are changes at a site or an update with RegDocs, where one thing can cause a whole domino effect. I figured it would help to bring up some scenarios and the effects that follow. (laughs) Okay, let's dive in. Let's start with changes to site staff. What if there is a new sub-investigator added? Let's look at the chain of events or documents that follow. So first, let's start with what document do you think of when you think of sub-investigators that are listed? The 1572, right? So the 1572 will definitely need to be updated to reflect the new sub-investigator that's been added to the study team. And then there's another place that I want you to think about that lists the study team at a site. Correct. Delegation of authority log. (laughs) So definitely it'll require an update to the 1572 and the new sub-I needs to be added to the delegation of authority log and then it'll list their start date That is going to be different from everyone else that was initially starting on the study at the same time. This new sub-I is going to have their start date that's applicable, and then also the tasks that are delegated by the PI. So once these two documents have been updated, you've confirmed that. What else? So just like I've mentioned before regarding study staff, the new sub-I will need to have the following documents filed. A CV, a medical license, and because they're listed on the 1572, they're going to need to have a signed financial disclosure form. We also want to ensure that they're trained. So remember, we need to see protocol, study training documentation, as well as GCP training documentation. So do you see here how one update can cause a whole chain reaction with the reg docs, right? So I'll just run through the list again real quick. You see that a new sub I has been added to the site staff. You want to see an updated 1572. You want to see that they're added to the delegation of authority log with their applicable new start date. And then you also want to see protocol, study training documentation, GCP documentation. You want to see their CV file, their medical license file, their financial disclosure form filed. Okay, that was a mouthful. (laughs) What if you noticed that a sub-I were to leave a study? They're leaving the study team. It's not as difficult as if they're being added, but there are things that do require updates and that you need to check for. So again, if it ends up that they're leaving the study, this would also require an update to that 1572 because this is a document that they're listed on. So if they're leaving the study, the 1572 would need to be revised, removing that sub-investigator. And then you would also want to ensure that his or her end date has been added to the delegation of authority log. And that way it'll show that they're no longer active on the study. And then you also won't look for updated essential documents for that person if they're no longer there. So once they leave, you won't have to look for an updated medical license or an updated GCP training documentation or an updated CV. It's an industry standard that the CVs are updated every two years. Again, that's going to be per your company SOPs and it'll be listed in your clinical monitoring plan. But anywho, so it helps to have that end date. You want to make sure that end date has been added to the delegation of authority log for that person leaving the study. So some consent forms, this doesn't happen often, but some sites do have consent forms that list the investigators on a study. So if so, and there is a change, an investigator, the ICF would also require an update as well. And then the site would need to complete the IRB's required forms in order to update the ICF. Okay, next scenario. 
What about an address change? Fun, right? (laughs) Sometimes my heart would sink when the site stated they would be moving. (laughs) Just because there's a good amount to follow up on. So in this case, if I'm talking to a coordinator and they mention that they're going to, say, be moving to a new location in the summer, I would update my lead CRA because remember, the current address that the site is located was toured at the PSV, the site selection visit, when they were chosen for the study. So changing their location would typically require another PSV in order to tour that new facility and confirm if it's acceptable for continuation of the study. Now, sometimes they'll allow this in combination with your next RMV, that routine monitoring visit, but this will depend if that's going to happen before any additional subject visits happen at that location because the location should be approved before any subjects go to that new location. Does that make sense? And usually when it's combined with the RMV, it'll just be a little section that you have in the report where you document the tour of the new facility and if it's acceptable for continuation of the study. And usually when they move to a new address, that new address is really the only change from when they were initially approved because it usually is the same site staff, the same equipment that you've already confirmed that they have and it's been calibrated appropriately. They'll have the same subject population and things like that. So usually it's touring the new facility, making sure it's acceptable for the study. Where are they going to store drug at this new location? Is it going to be locked, secure with limited access? Will the temp ranges be appropriate for the study drug in the study? Where will the study supplies be stored? Where will the source documentation be stored? Will it be secure? Will it be with limited access? Things like that you'd want to confirm. There's a list. You'd make your little mini checklist, I guess, because it's not really a full PSV that you'll be performing. But again, most of the time it can be combined with the RMV, it just, again, depends if there's going to be any subject visits prior to you touring the new facility and it being approved for use in the study. And now that leads to IRB documentation because this will include a revised consent form because usually the site address is um, listed on there. So once they get their new IRB documentation approvals with the new address, this is going to include a revised consent form. So because there's going to be a new version of that ICF, then that most recent version is going to be the version that the newly enrolled subjects are going to sign because it's the most current IRB approved version. But then all of the active subjects that are in the study will have to sign this new version as well. So that's a lot of fun. But again, that's why it's very important to document and keep track of every ICF version that is in the study because you want to make sure that all newly consented subjects sign the most recent, most current IRB approved version of the consent form, as well as all active subjects. So it's definitely important to keep track of all the versions. And the best way that I like to do it is through maintaining an ICF tracking log. Okay, now that I've gone on and on about the ICFs, (laughs) there are other documents that are going to require updates due to a new site address. So again, what document do you think of that contains site addresses, PI address, all the addresses where the study is going to be conducted, what document do you think of? Correct again, the 1572. So that is going to require an update of the new study site address. Now, the financial disclosure forms. Remember, everybody on that 1572 has to sign a financial disclosure form. And usually that document will contain the site address as well. So that will require an update. And everybody on the 1572 is going to have to sign a new one, as well as CVs. One way that we can 
determine a PI or somebody's affiliation with a site is through the site address being listed on the CV. So if there's an updated site address, that address will need to be updated on everybody's CV in the study. So that's another document as well as the protocol signature page and the IB acknowledgement. Sometimes these documents that are signed by the PI will also include the site address. So if the PSP, the protocol signature page, or the IB acknowledgement contain the site address, then those will also need to be updated with a new address, and then the PI will have to sign the updated copies of those as well. And also regarding contracts, agreements, the CDA, you want to check with your lead or someone, maybe a contact in the study startup group, who in turn may confirm with legal how they want to handle updating contracts agreements in the CDA in regard to the new site address. So there's going to definitely be a lot of hands and, and guidance that you'll receive from different individuals on the study team, and that will help you to know exactly everything that's required to be updated with this new site address. Also, study logs that list the site address and the header, some examples of the delegation of authority log, as well as IP logs. Sometimes those also also contain the site address. So anywhere the site address is located, the new address would need to be added. And the study team will also need to ensure that all the study vendors are updated. Because think about it, there's vendors that send out shipments of study drug, that send out lab supplies, maybe ECG supplies, things like that. So sometimes the study teams will maintain a site contact list. It'll be one central big Excel spreadsheet that will list the study contacts at the site as well as where to deliver shipments of study drug, where to deliver lab supplies. All those addresses will have to be updated. So as you can see, make sure to keep your lead updated so you can get the proper guidance of everything that needs to be performed. And I also had an interesting situation one time where the location of the site wasn't changing. It was a change, and I want to say it was their legal name, because it didn't change anything with the practice, and it didn't change their location. It had something to do with their site facility, like their legal name or something like that. Anyway, updated my lead, and we contacted legal in the contracts department, and I remember them wanting me to confirm I think something with a tax ID, if that was going to be changed or affected. and But anyway, so in a situation like this, you see where different departments directed me what to confirm with the site, and then they directed me what required an update. So definitely let your lead know when you receive any update like this with the site, and they will work with the different departments to get the answers that you need and to give you the proper guidance of what requires an update. So here's another scenario that leads to a chain of events. What if you're reviewing the source and you notice that a subject does not meet eligibility criteria, even though the PI has signed off regarding the subject meeting all inclusion and no exclusion criteria? And this can definitely happen where a subject's been approved by the PI and they've been randomized to study drug and you find out when you go there to monitor that they really were not eligible. Now, most studies I have been assigned to will have a medical monitor. They're usually so much of a blessing. They're very experienced in that therapeutic area and they provide medical expertise and oversight for the study and the sites can contact them regarding eligibility questions, allowed and disallowed medications, safety issues, following up on SAEs and things like that. And also CRAs on most of the studies that I've been on, we could contact the medical monitor directly with any questions that we have while we're monitoring. And that happens. I might want to confirm, is this medication truly allowed? I may 
have a pretty good feeling that a subject's not eligible, but maybe there's something I want to confirm with a medical monitor first before bringing it up to the PI. So definitely, it's been such a blessing whenever we're able to contact the medical monitors directly, and they're such a huge support. I love the ones that I've worked with. So when you're reviewing the source and you've observed that a subject was randomized and they're not really eligible, the medical monitor must be contacted. And each study will have their own procedures regarding what they do, or maybe if there's any report form that needs to be completed if this is um, discovered or observed at a site. In my experience, the sites would have to complete and submit a form to the medical monitor listing the issue and that they were randomized and they weren't eligible and which criteria would have excluded them. And then the medical monitor would review the form and they would sign off on it and they would either approve or not approve a subject to continue in the study. And then the site would receive it back and they would have to file this documentation with the subject source documentation. Now, if they were approved to continue in the study, the site still had to capture a protocol deviation or violation that would still need to be captured. And the site would need to document this issue in the source. They, of course, would have to file that approval for the subject to continue in the study and the source. And they would also need to submit this deviation or violation to the IRB per their reporting guidelines. Each IRB has their own guidelines of what they require to be submitted to them, but the fact that an issue of a subject not eligible that was randomized to study drug could affect safety and data integrity, most IRBs are gonna wanna know about this one. So definitely advise the site to submit it to the IRB per their reporting guidelines. And the site definitely will also require retraining regarding the protocol, the inclusion-exclusion criteria, and then this training would need to be documented. The site would need to file that in the regulatory binder, as well as you would wanna take a copy for the trial master file. Now, if the medical monitor does not approve for a subject to continue in the study, then the subject would need to be early termed from the study according to your protocol. But usually there's an early termination visit for subjects who need to be early termed and do not complete the study. And then those remaining steps would need to be performed regarding capturing the protocol deviation and filing the correspondence with the medical monitor in the source, as well as submitting it to the IRB per the reporting guidelines. So all those steps would need to be followed if they're not approved to continue, as well as in addition, they would have to be early termed from the study. Again, each study is different follow the protocol, follow that clinical monitoring plan. But you can see that one update or issue found can result in many steps, chain reaction or domino effect. So I hope these examples have been helpful. You definitely will come across those in your monitoring career. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe. If you have any questions or maybe there's a certain topic that you want me to address or a question that you want answered, definitely send me a DM. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook and it's under the CRA Helper. I pray that you guys are safe out there. I absolutely love each and every one of you and I look forward to our time together during the next episode. Until next time.